the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by him, unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm the pastor of Discipleship. If you're a guest with us, and I would say the same thing that Cody said earlier, if you are a guest, thanks for being with us today. That's not lost on us. That's a big thing. Um, as one of my favorite comedians always says at the beginning of his thing, he says, you don't have to be here. And so it's a big thing that you are. You could do something else. Um, and it's great to see the One Fellowship family. Um, this is just a side note. I've just realized this week, honestly, how thankful I am for this community. Um, sometimes you just need to take a step back and realize that, that, that this is a special, special thing that God is doing. And um, it's amazing to be a part of that. And so welcome. Um, I'm excited to share with you today and to get the opportunity to open up this passage that you just heard read. Um, this past week, we had a spring membership class. It was incredibly encouraging people coming um, to this class that have been a part of the church for maybe a few weeks, a few months that are looking to take that next step. Um, and it was great to connect with these new families and individuals who are considering making One Fellowship their home. And as we started out this time of talking over Zoom, the first thing we asked was this question, why, why membership? Why does, why does membership inside of the church really matter? And I want you to think for a moment just about the culture that we live in these days. You can join clubs, you can join gyms, you can join organizations, you can pay dues. And at the same time, if you want to, when you want to, you can walk away. We live, and I think we all know this, we live in a very low commitment culture. And so what this means is that when you do commit to something, when you do put a stake in the ground and say, I'm here no matter what, or I'm here even if it gets tough, I'm here even if it's not popular, I'm here even if it requires something of me, it really means something. And especially when you stay committed when it's not popular. You see, we not only live in a low commitment culture, we live in a very sort of skittish, fickle culture. If you've lived long, long enough, I'm sure you know this, that people can 
be singing your praise, cheering you on one minute, and then they can turn their back on you the next. And this is what we see happen to Jesus during this time in his ministry. He's incredibly popular. Thousands upon thousands of people want to know where he is at every minute, and they're following him. They're showing up wherever he goes. He's healing people. He's doing miracles. He's feeding them, right? Who doesn't want to be fed? He's teaching in a way that no one else has taught before. There is no one during this time that is more popular than Jesus. And then it all changes. With a few words, it all shifts. As we look at this passage today, I just want to encourage all of us, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, five minutes, or you're not a Christian and you're just examining what all of this is about, I want to encourage us to be open to whatever God wants to say to us today, what he wants to challenge us with, because this is a challenging passage. What is he trying to draw you into? Literally, you, individually, as you sit here, as you join us online. That in a low-commitment culture, we would be the opposite when it comes to Jesus. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us, but before I, want to, before I do that, I, I, I want us to take just one minute, literally 60 seconds, and I just want us to, to sit in silence. I know you might say that seems really, really odd or really strange, but here's what I know, especially this week, is that we not only live in a low commitment culture, we live in a very fast paced culture. And we probably walked in with a lot of stuff going on in our minds and on our hearts today. And I think sometimes God just wants us to take a moment and just to say, hey, settle my heart, settle my mind, you know, speak to, speak to me here. And so let's just do that. It might feel weird, I get it. But let's take that 60 seconds. Let's just sit with God for a moment. And then we'll, we'll pick up and we'll continue here. God, I pray that you would speak to us during this time through your word. Jesus, I thank you that you are the word, the truth, and the life. God, that this word is a living and active word. And so would you call us to something deeper today? Would you take away anything that might resist you? God, whether that's our own pride, our own flesh, our own, um, uh, maybe just even inner rebellion, God, would you speak to us in a gentle voice, but in a truthful voice? We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. 
All right, let's pick up in John 6. We are in verse 60. Here's how it starts. It says, when many of his disciples heard it. Now, anytime you see the word, when many of his disciples heard it, and that's the beginning of where we're at today, it means we need to take a quick look back. What did they, what did they hear? Well, when we look back at what Jesus said, as Paul shared last week with us, he said some pretty offensive words that would have really rocked the crowd. Here's what he said. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. That's not something you hear every day. This is what Jesus shares with them. Now, what does he really mean by this? He's not speaking literally, he's speaking figuratively here, but what he's saying is that unless you take my life into your life, unless we become intimately knit together and connected, unless you lay down your will and you pick up my will and I become the focus of your affections, the desire of your heart, even though your heart it sometimes can be fickle, you can't be my disciple. This is what it literally means to be my disciple, is to take my life into yours. And so here's their response. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Essentially, Jesus is saying, if you saw me rise to heaven where I came from, because you claim that you're a follower of me, that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah sent, if you, if you saw this happen, would that change your perspective? Would that change your mind? Would that change the way that you think about this? Essentially, he's reminding them of who he is and who they've claimed that he is. He says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What a statement here. We know this, right? <laughs> I mean, we know that uh, our flesh, a lot of times, is absolutely no help at all. We've all been there, and we are there from time to time, often. We are led by the desires of our flesh. We run after what looks good, what feels good, what we think will make us whole, what we think will give our life meaning or purpose. And what we find out is that it actually usually leaves us feeling more empty than we did before, that the feelings are fleeting, that we're left wanting. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He goes on and he says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who, who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. If you remember earlier in this passage in verse 44, Jesus says something similar. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is really interesting here in this uh, language that Jesus uses because draw is really a word of emphasis here. In the original language, it actually means to drag. To drag. But not kicking and screaming. That's not what Jesus means by this. Meaning dead weight. That the Father would actually have to bring us completely to Jesus. 
that it's no work of our own because this is used in the passive sense. So, so it's, it's meaning that it's not the disposition of our soul to run after God. We don't wake up one day and just say, you know what, I think I need Jesus. And I just run after him. It's quite the opposite. How many days have you woken up and you're like, I don't know that I want anything to do with this. I just want to do my own thing. Like, uh, I want to do this and I don't know if that aligns. It, because of the flesh that we have within us that's broken, that's full of sin, waywardness, rebellion. Not to run after God, but to run a, away from him a lot of times. To, to try to find happiness, to, to find whatever we think is going to satisfy. So if we come to God, and this is great, and this is actually fantastic news for us. If we come to God, we can be confident that it's not any work of our own, but completely the work of God through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, showing us truth that brings us into a relationship with Jesus, that we are dead weight and God is doing all of the heavy lifting. And this is fantastic because it means that God, who not only draws us into the relationship, sustains the relationship. Isn't that good news? That it's not dependent on us to sustain this grace-filled relationship with Jesus. Because guess what? If it was, I'd blow it every single day. Newsflash, you do too. But this is the goodness of God. This is what Jesus is getting at. Hey, if you're a follower of me, it's because God has brought you here. He's opened up the blinders of your heart, the blinders over your eyes. But unfortunately for many, what God is actually drawing them to, as we see here in this passage, requires more than they're willing to give. Or maybe even more than that, give up. This is what we see next. After this, verse 66, many of the disciples turned their back and they no longer walked with him. The crowds have left. Imagine this. Imagine watching on this hillside thousands upon thousands of people who aren't just called crowds. It didn't say, it didn't say hey, just the crowds left. No, no, no. Disciples walked away. Disciples, meaning those that claim to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that claim to believe that he actually was the one sent from God the Father to save. And yet, once Jesus challenges them to something deeper, what happens? They walk away. Um, one of my friends growing up, his name's Jeremy, is actually a pastor in Brevard, North Carolina right now. Shout out to Calvary Church in Brevard. Um, I grew up with him in Missouri, and he was about five years older than me, and he was, uh, he was actually a friend that got me um, turned on to classic vehicles and stuff. And so he and his dad, they would, they would buy old Mustangs and Broncos, these awesome old vehicles, and, and they would work on them. And um, sometimes I would tag along when they would look at these vehicles together, and we would usually look for one main thing on these bodies. Some of you know what that is. It's rust. Not just surface rust, but deep rust. And as we would show up and we'd look at these cars, uh, time after time, what we'd realize is that when owners would come to sell these old vehicles, if they needed to cover up the rust, they would take a very thin sheet of what's called Bondo putty, and they would put it over and they would repaint. Because if you do that from the outside, the car looks perfect. So we would go around on the car on the body and we would literally just click on it with our knuckles because you could hear the Bondo. 
And here's the thing about Bondo. It's really easy to detect. It's this thin layer, this thin sheet. False Christianity is a lot like that. It can look perfect on the outside. It can look good. It can have the right lines. It looks like it's performing right. And yet, when you get below this thin sheet, it reveals what's really there. And that's what we see here. Jesus spends so much time talking about this in his ministry, challenging people to examine the relationship that they claim to have with them, questioning whether they are really as spiritually healthy as they think they are. This is offensive. Who would talk like this? Who would question this? People who really care about you. People who really love you. People who love you so much that they're not willing for you to simply believe in something that's not true or follow a false narrative, but they approach you with the truth, even though sometimes the truth is really hard to hear. This is Jesus. He's filled with two things. What are those? Grace and truth. And this isn't a scare tactic. This isn't a, hey, you better check yourself here. I'm, I'm trying to scare you into belief. That's not it at all. This is a loving brother saying, I love you so much. I want to make sure you know what it means to follow me, what it means to have a relationship with me. I don't want you buying into some of the false beliefs and false narratives that are out there. So I'm going to bring this up time and time again so that you examine your own heart, examine your own life, right? This grace and truth, that we all need to hear truth and grace, and it's grace that makes the truth possible for us to hear. Even when it's hard truth. Even when it offends our flesh like we looked at last week. I mean, think about all the parables that Jesus uses to really illuminate this. That to show what it really means, what it looks like, what it results in to follow him. I mean, the parable of the two houses, right? They both look the same. One's built on sand, one built on rocks. The waves come, hard times come. One is destroyed and one stands firm. Or you can think about the parable of the four types of soil, which represents our heart, and seeds are dropped, and, and three of those, essentially, they don't bear fruit. One does, and he's saying, examine your hearts. Or the two men in Luke 9, if you remember maybe that story, two men to come to Jesus, and they say, we'll follow you wherever you'll go. And Jesus says to one, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Do you really want to follow me? Like, I'm, I'm homeless. Like, I don't have a permanent residence. That's a hard truth for one. And the other one says, I want to follow you, but I've got to go take care of some things in my house. My father passed away, and Jesus says, no, 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 the time of commitment is right now. He says this over and over and over again. And what we see in verse 60 is the people say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What they aren't saying is, we don't understand. What are you saying, Jesus? What they're saying is, the ask is too much. I can't accept this. It's too difficult. G.K. Chesterton says this. He says, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. And that can be tough and that can be true. Why was this such a hard saying? Because one, the people said it was too difficult because still in their minds, think about the culture in which they live, they thought, there's no way that I can live up to that. 
There's no way that I can make this happen. There's no way that I can do that. And Jesus, just like he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect. And people are like, I can't be perfect. And he's like, exactly, you need me. Because following Jesus requires humility. It requires admitting that we've fallen short and completely short. To use a football analogy, it's none of us are on the one yard line about to score and we're like, hey, I'm 95% good and I need like that 5% of Jesus. We're wandering around in the parking lot, not even sure how to make it into the stadium, right? Like that's literally where we find ourselves. Fallen completely short. And that offends our flesh. It offends me. It offended me over and over this week. I had to read this and set it down and pick it back up because we think that we maybe are a little bit better than than we are or that we have it more together. But it offends our flesh because we're faced with this reality that we don't like to face. And here's what it is, that we can't be our own God, that we can't take care of our biggest needs and issues that no amount of knowledge, education, money, good works will actually do the trick or save us. It means giving up control. It means sacrifice. It means the possibility of life looking differently or not being in the popular group. It means accepting the lordship of Jesus, giving him the reins. Because what Jesus is saying by eating my flesh and drinking my blood is that I have to be the thing that sustains your life. Not your career, not relationships, not wealth, not stature. It's me. And this was and is hard to accept, this total reliance on Jesus. And so Jesus is left turning around, looking at the 12. And you can imagine this scene. Jesus turns to his 12, and I believe with gentleness and even sadness that so many walking away, he asks them this honest question. I don't think he asks it like, well... Do you want to go too? No, I think it's Jesus turning to his 12 and saying, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave? Imagine the sadness in Jesus' heart, the one who came to save, the one who didn't come to condemn. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. Jesus didn't come to hold everything you've ever done over your head. Jesus came to save you, to give you the peace and the rest that your heart has always longed for. Do you want to go as well? And I love Peter's answer to this because it's the cry of every imperfect, sometimes wayward, rough around the edges, with a past follower of Jesus. Here's what he says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have yet come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Peter speaks for all believers here when he says, Where else would I go? I need you. Have you had those moments? Have you had those dark night of the soul moments? I remember those. Gosh, I remember one really vividly, just a season even in Seattle a couple years ago, just sitting up in the upper room of our house. We'd gone through another year. It was six years at the time of infertility. We were struggling with that. It was tough. It was difficult for Laura and I. I was dealing with a season of a lot of anxiety. 
I was seeing a therapist. I was talking to a lot of people, and every single day felt overwhelming. And I remember just sitting alone in the silence in this room, turning the light off in the dark, on my knees, just pleading with God. And honestly, sometimes just wanting to walk away, wanting to throw in the towel, wanting to give up, wanting to say, this is too tough. I don't want to do this. And yet in all of those conversations, what I realized is that I ended up realizing that I didn't have the answers. I didn't have the solutions, but I would come to that place of where else would I go? Because even in the anger, even in the frustration, even in the difficulty, I still believe Jesus was Jesus. I still believe that a life with him was better than a life without him. I still believe that he held the words of eternal life. It's what a a priest that I spent some time with in Seattle, he described it this way. He said, a lot of times if you grow up inside of the church, you grow up with what I would call a paper faith. Meaning that maybe you believe because your grandparents believed, or maybe you've just been going to church for a long time and you're like, yeah, I accept that. I believe what the Bible says. He says, but then a rock falls into the paper. A rock in your life, something difficult happens. It's a tough season. He said it completely crushes that paper faith. And he said, you're left trying to figure out what do I really believe? Who really is Jesus? What is the true hope that I have? And he said, out of that, because it's the Father who draws you, because it's God who's doing the work, that's when a concrete faith is established, where you really put your stake in the ground. That's absolutely true. This realization that a life with Jesus is better than a life without him, that we can't do it on our own, but we know the one who can. Even on the hard days, it's worth it. So what was missing with everybody who left? Why did, the fo- why did they follow Jesus in the first place? Well, think about it. They followed him because he was giving them something. Food, health care. They loved it. They wanted to consume that. Who wouldn't? They followed him because of political nature. They wanted to make him king, right? He had to retreat. They were like, hey, maybe you can make life better for us. They followed him because it was popular, which we do. We follow something when it's popular until it's not. And yet something was missing. What was missing? Let's get down to the heart of it real quick. A changed heart. A changed heart was missing. What the people who leave show us is that following Jesus isn't about the exterior. It's not about just coming to church, giving a tithe, showing up to a group, volunteering in the name of Jesus. It's about really knowing Jesus. It's about him changing your heart. Here's the big idea for us today. Followers of Jesus are marked by a changed heart that leads to a committed life. And let me stipulate, we don't do this perfectly. So we can all take a breath. But ultimately, this is what it looks like. A changed heart that leads to a committed life. With Peter's response, essentially he's saying this, I know who I was before. I was this rough fisherman. I was doing my own thing. But after meeting you, how could I walk away? You've changed my heart. You've changed my life. I'm in no matter what. Now, does this mean Peter doesn't blow it? No, he denies Jesus three times, not too distant in the future, but he never fully walks away. And Jesus brings him back and he draws him close and he still uses him in amazingly powerful ways. He shows him kindness and mercy. A changed heart leads to a committed life. It leads to something called methetos, which is this amazing word for follower. During this time, followers, um, essentially it's this, right? Let me, just, let me just start here. There were no paved roads, all right? <laughs> Dirt. People would walk on the dirt and they would walk in sandals. And so if a person was following someone, 
They would walk closely behind. And if you're following someone in sandals on a dirt road long enough, what happens? The person in front of you is kicking up dust and dirt. And so the person behind, the follower, is covered with the dust and dirt of that person that they're following. That's the idea here, is that followers of Jesus, we're walking closely with him and we, we have that dirt from him on us. We look like him. We, we feel like him. We, we smell like him. We take on the aroma of Jesus, the one that we're following. And this was missing. And this is such a big question for us. Does our life look like, does it feel like Jesus, although imperfectly and sometimes we're veering off course, are we continuing to seek him, to get to know him more, to keep walking in his path, even when it's not easy, even when it's not popular? And it brings up this question, what are you feeding on, right? What are you feeding on? I was thinking this week a lot about our junior high and high school students in here, the iGen, right? And that doesn't mean, oh, I all about me. What does that mean? Anybody? Generation with an iPhone, right? Growing up with an iPhone, with smartphones. I was thinking about how much more pressure are on students today than, than were ever on me in my life, right? In my life, you would maybe see my picture one time a year, and it would be in the yearbook. And this shows how much I cared about my picture. That's, that's my senior picture. I had the Justin Timberlake perm, no kidding, decided to pick it out that day. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're, a couple people are going to see my picture in the yearbook, maybe. But today, think about what students are growing up with. If you're a student in here, Facebook, Instagram, you know what parties are going on that you may not have been invited to. You know what your friends are doing. You feel this insane pressure to live up to this man-made standard of performance or, or social acceptance or popularity, and it's tough. And we can try to, even as adults, feed on that, feed on that, feed on that, and we still come up hungry. We still come up wanting. When in reality, feeding on Jesus is the only place that we're really sustained. And that's what Jesus is trying to get out in this passage. You can feed on what the world offers, this illusion that leads us to tirely search for meaning and purpose. Or you can feed on me, the one who holds the truth and proved it through my life, death, and resurrection. Following Jesus may cost us. It may cost us a lot. But here's what we get in return. Great news. We get a family. We get a savior. We get a future. We get our greatest need taken care of. We get our sin wiped away and an eternity with God. That the Jesus who is telling this crowd, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, is the one that knows he's going to go to the cross to have his flesh torn and his blood shed on their behalf. Jesus isn't trying to scare these people and he's not trying to shame them. What he's trying to do is have an honest conversation of saying what I'm offering you is amazing grace but you need to lay down your life and pick up mine. We get a family, we get eternity with God, we get to help build up the kingdom as we share this good news with others. We get to move beyond ourselves, which is incredibly healthy, and we get to see others in a new light as Jesus sees them. We get a helper who walks with us in the spirit, guides us, keeps us safe. You get a fulfilled life because we are being sustained by Jesus and not false hope. We get a life where our identity is 
complete, where we don't have to live up to man-made standards, which results then in our joy and peace, what everyone is searching for and wants. We get a purpose that's clear. We get an impact that's eternal. We get security with a God who absolutely loves us. So what's the invitation today? Here's what it is really simple, to commit or recommit. Maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus. I can promise you this. No matter what your past looks like, no matter what your present looks like, no matter where you find yourself today, he's inviting you into a relationship with him. And he's not saying clean yourself up. He's not saying perfect your life. He's saying give me your life and I'm going to give you mine. Give me your worst. I'm going to give you my best. Turn from your sin and turn to me. If you will humbly acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, he welcomes you into the family with open arms. And if you've been a Christian and you are a Christian in here, I'm not talking about some magical recommitment where everything's now perfect and we're perfectly holy, but I'm talking about just sitting with Jesus and saying, there are parts of my life where I know maybe I'm not fully committed. There are parts of my life where I'm still holding on. There are parts of my life that I need to lay that down to you. And Jesus knows what those are, and he welcomes it. He says, bring all your burdens to me, and I will care for you. Imagine the impact of a church here at One Fellowship going out into our outside community as committed followers of Jesus. Even when it's not popular, and here's a newsflash, it's not. But it's worth it. Because who else holds the words of eternal life than the loving, eternal God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So would we commit, would we recommit to Jesus, his bride, and his mission? It's not always easy because life's messy. People are messy. Seasons of life are messy. And yet where else can we find true hope? It's only in Jesus. Followers of Jesus are marked by a changed heart that leads to a committed life. And although this is a challenging word, it's a good word because it's full of life. It's full of hope. It's full of grace. Jesus, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your love. Would you continue by the work of the Spirit within us, through the guidance of the Father, draw us closer to you. For our good, for your glory. Thank you for being a God of grace and truth. May we not only accept that, may we live it out. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.